Some time ago now, I began this consecutive expository series subtitled, Seeing Jesus Together in the Gospel of Luke. And last week, if you've been with us, we looked at and were introduced the full-grown John the Baptizer. Now, if you haven't been with us, you can look that up on YouTube or on, um, uh, I'm trying to remember what our podcast, our podcast, you can look it up on that as well. If you want to find any of these, you can do so if you're behind. But uh, we're glad you're here today as we enter into the third chapter of Luke. And our scripture reading comes from verse 21 through verse 38 of Luke chapter 3. And again, I remind you, as always, this is not the words of men or women. These are the words of the true and living God. Hear them with careful attention and appreciation. Now... When all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you. I am well pleased. And Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, and the son of Esli, and the son of Nagai, and the son of Math, and the son of Mattathias, and the son of Simeon, and the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, and the son of Joanna, and the son of Resha and the son of Zerubbabel, and the son of Shiltiel, and the son of Neri, and the son of Milki, and the son of Adi, and the son of Kosem, and the son of El-Madem, and the son of Ur, and the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, the son of Jehoram, the son of Mathat, and the son of Levi, and the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, and the son of Joseph, and the son of Jonam, and the son of Eliakim, and the son of Meli, and the son of Menah, and the son of Mattatha, and the son of Nathan, and the son of David, and the son of Jesse, and the son of Obed, and the son of Boaz, and the son of Selah, and the son of Nashon, and the son of of Amnadab, and the son of Admin, and the son of Arni, 
and the son of Hezron, and the son of Perez, and the son of Judah, and the son of Jacob, and the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sirag, and the son of Reu, and the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shalah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Let's ask God's blessing upon this his holy word. Father, we pray that you will help us see and understand the significance of this, your word, even when it's names and that we can hardly pronounce and understand. And yet, Father, you were working your faithfulness through the years, Lord, revealing your purposes. Father, give us light and understanding now today together. And we pray in Jesus' name, asking for the light of the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, <laughs> I don't know. You probably could have done better with that list than I did. Uh, but uh, I did put a little time into it, trying to make sure I could get through it without stumbling uh, 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 all over the place. Uh, but that's a, that's a pretty long, but by the way, that's not an entire genealogy. It's not an entire genealogy. There are others, but these are some of the significant ones. No, not, not yet on that one. Hold that one off. Back that one up. There we go. Okay. Yeah, I used the wrong word. I told them that would be the key word, and I used it. So that's on me. That's on me. Uh, that was not an operator error. That was mine. Okay. Um, a number of years ago, um, my kids uh, gave me a subscription to Ancestry.com. And soon after that, I found out that one of my very best friends that had lived with me for a while ended up marrying a girl who was my second cousin. And with their help, I was able to discover my genealogical roots are Swiss German, and they go back to the 15th century and probably beyond. But that's as far as we could go now. I hope to one day get over there and maybe uh, try to see if we can't go a little further back. And uh, I look forward to that if that ever happens. But now, what's that got to do with anything? Well, they didn't have Ancestry.com or 23, whatever it is, the other one, back in Jesus' day. But as we just read, or as I just read to you, 
as I just read to you, they took great pride, great concern over knowing their lineage, their ancestry, and how important that was. We tend to not stress that as much in our time and culture, at least not whole scale, but they did. And it, it's amazing, like I said, even though this is not the entire list, but Mary would have known that entire list all the way back to Adam. Now you talk about impressive. That is impressive. Now, you'll, we'll get more into that on the back end of our focus today. Now, remember, although John, who we looked at last time, John the baptizer as he was often referred to, even though, remember, Jesus said of him in Matthew 11, 11, that he was the greatest man of his era. Although John was the greatest man in the old covenant age, it was time for the spotlight to be swung and focused on Jesus and his mission here. The great one, John, was surpassed and eclipsed by the greater one, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, we're going to be, from here on, now, really putting the spotlight on Jesus, who is about, remember what it said in the, in the scripture, 30 years of age. He and John, only about six months apart. And yet now, John has decreased, and Jesus is increasing, and the focus is on him. And Luke now, today, tells us something very, very important about the sonship. You notice there the sonship. What does that mean? That refers to the ways in which Jesus was a son of God and also a son of man. Today's outline goes like this. The divine son of God is the first thing we're going to look at. And the second thing we're going to look at is the human Son of God. So the divine Son of God and the human Son of God. Remember the text, uh, the uh, Westminster Confession Catechism says that he was God and man in two distinct natures, one person forever. But he is the divine Son of and he is also the human son of God. And we'll see that in both in this text today. Now, as for the divine son, that's in verses 21 through 22. Now, artists are very uh, prone and very fond of depicting when they try to depict uh, the scene of Jesus being baptized in the Jordan by John. When they try to do that, 
they usually have Jesus kind of alone, like it's a solo act. You know, here's Jesus, and here's John, and there's just a bunch of water, and, and then the doves uh, may be coming at that point. Uh, but something like that. But that's not really the scene at all that Luke is alluding to here. Uh, when, though that's common depiction, Luke's description challenges that notion and tells us that Jesus was standing in a long line of people. Possibly, he may have been standing in a long line that particular day toward the very end. Or this also could be, Luke could be using this to refer to, in other words, when all John had done all of his work and his focus and his baptizing, at the very end of that came Jesus. And then now turns the whole spotlight on our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's not at all as usually depicted. Now Luke's account, um, excuse me, uh, Luke's description, as I said, challenges that original notion. Um, and Luke's account of Jesus' baptism is, is further uh, kind of devoid of a lot of detail. Uh, there's no specific detail, exactly where were they. Uh, there's no location indicator. Uh, it's not told. Luke's not concerned about that. Luke's got, again, his eyes on a bigger prize. Furthermore, he does not shed any light on the question of even why Jesus was baptized. Now, Matthew does more on that, and more we can gather from that in Scripture in various places. But Luke does not focus on that. Furthermore, the baptism of John, remember, was a baptism of repentance, but what? Jesus had nothing to repent of. He was perfect. He had not sinned. And therefore, Jesus could not be baptized with the baptism that John was doing for all of the rest of Israel and any other proselytes that would come. Jesus being sinless clearly had no need for repentance and its accompanying right. But he nonetheless was baptized. By the way, some people, and I'll, I'll explain this a little bit later, but let me just throw this out. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but sometimes people will say they want to follow Jesus in his baptism. Ladies and gentlemen, that's impossible. You can follow other sinners in their baptism and say, hey, Johnny got baptized. I want to get baptized because I love Jesus too. You can do that. <laughs> but you can't follow Jesus in his baptism because he did not need to have his sins washed away and be purified and forgiven. He needed, didn't need a redeemer to Jesus's baptism was for another purpose Luke doesn't go into that much detail of that but why did Jesus do it Jesus did not come to John to confess as I said repent and repent of his own sins of which he had none he came 
He came to make himself one with those who did submit to the right in order to fulfill all that the law required. So he had nothing that he needed to fulfill for himself. But he knew that we didn't have what we needed to. Remember, he said, I will come. John said he will come with the Holy Spirit and fire. It won't just be water. It's going to be redeeming Holy Spirit, regeneration, and fire. So, for Luke, Jesus' baptism provides the context for the more important thing he's trying to communicate here. And right now, he's talking about the divine triune encounter. That's what he's setting it all up for. It's not to talk about how the baptism was done or whether this was somebody. No, no. Jesus, I mean, John, I mean, no, Luke is steady focused on the heavens opening and the triune God being present. You see, when Luke says that when Jesus was praying, the heavens were opened. Now, what does that mean? That's a, that doesn't mean a lot to us. Well, what do you mean the heavens are opened? Well, that's something pretty similar to what Isaiah 64.1 says. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. It's, it's a, a human saying, God, would you rend the heavens? Oh, that you would now open the heavens and come down. Now, what does that mean? That's what's implied there. But what does that mean? This phrase speaks of times, unique, special times, when the things of heaven and the things of earth are brought together at some extraordinary event. The things that are normally separate and cannot interchange, and yet, when God comes down in the Holy Spirit, that is this event. Luke then says the Holy Spirit descended in a visible manifestation of a dove, and that validated Jesus' ministry before all to see. Remember, Luke did imply that there probably were a lot of other people around. This was no solo act with him and John and the Holy Spirit coming down there. This would have been probably seen by many. Now, there is a, an expression that is used sometimes to describe when an angel or when God in a burning bush or something, that's a theophany. That's an appearance of God in some form that we can see or get a sense of. Otherwise, God is pure spirit but he accommodates himself sometimes when he comes down as in the burning bush or in this case with the holy spirit taking the form of a dove and in that moment three distinct persons of the trinity were present if someone says the bible and i've heard this you've probably a lot of you've heard infidels saying Unbelievers saying, 
There's no place in the Bible that talks about the Trinity, that mentions the Trinity. Well, not in the word Trinity. That would be correct. But it's described and then pointed out in a number of places. And also think about what Jesus says when, he, when he's uh, about to return to the Father. Go in the Great Commission and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There, but here it is being you're seeing the three come together. At that moment, three distinct persons, the Son prayed, the Holy Spirit descended, and the Father affirmed the Christ, the Messiah, that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. Now, what good news is delivered by the voice when God said, you are my beloved son. Listen, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. What great good news that is. That's great good news on any front. But you know what? It's not, we need more than that. See, that's saying, God, that's my boy. I love my son. I'm so proud of him. But what about you and me? If that's all that's said, if that's all that's involved, if there's not more, you and I are still up the creek without a paddle. <laughs> there's no good news yet for us. That's great. Wouldn't it have been cool to have seen that and heard that voice and know that God loves his son? But because the gospel, there is more. Listen, listen to this by the commentator uh, Mike McKinley. Listen to this. It's just great, great stuff. The real surprise of the gospel, of course, is that the pleasing son did not come into history just to enjoy the love and pleasure of his heavenly father. Jesus would, the father would more than once again say something like this. But that's not the reason he said that he came. Instead, Shockingly, we see at his baptism that the sinless Jesus is identifying himself with sinful humanity like me and you. He's taken our stuff to himself. He went under the waters of baptism as a way of saying, consider me to be one of you. Helpless, hopeless sinners. And ultimately, he became one of us so that he could take our place and take our punishment. The sacrificial kindness of God comes into sharper, sharper focus when we see the way the Father's love and pleasure at Jesus' baptism is replaced 
by the cup of God's wrath at the cross. Luke 22, 39 through 46, and Matthew 27, 46. Jesus willingly identified with sinful humanity so that the sinful humans could be identified with his righteousness. Remember, Paul called Christ our righteousness. Yours and mine, unworthy sinners. It's our righteousness because of what Jesus did for us. Remember? Remember what he said? For our sakes, he made him, Jesus, sin, who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Now, that's the divine Son. Where does the human Son come in? The human Son of God. Well, that's in that long list, verses 23 through 38. Remember, Luke loves to trace details. All the way to the beginning. And on the surface, on the surface, the genealogy appears to be, at first blush, one of Joseph. Which is the same thing that you get from Matthew, his gospel. But that's not really the case. According to Kent Hughes, I want you to listen to this. I'm reading a little more from, but these are really important things to, to understand and grasp this. Kent Hughes says, why, why is he saying that's Mary's genealogy? In other words, not his? He said, this would be the case if Mary had no brothers. Because then her father, Heli, remember hearing that name? In accordance with biblical tradition, would have legally adopted Joseph, her husband, as his own son and heir when Joseph married Mary. Apparently, Matthew gives Joseph's ancestry by birth, by ordinary means, while Luke gives it by adoption. Do you, do you get that? This other connection is by adoption, which is as real and genuine as if you're a natural born son. In God's eyes and the eyes of the law. You see, the introductory phrase, he was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, may allude to this situation. The implication being that Jesus was the son of Mary, whose genealogy then follows. 23 all the way through 38. All those names, all those lines going all the way back. Now, readers have wrestled with this genealogy between Matthew and Luke. There's some things that are hard to understand and grasp. But I think this will help us here. Jesus' genealogy, as it is recorded in Luke 
excuse me, let me readers have wrestled with this, uh, with the differences between Jesus' gene- genealogy as it's recorded in Luke and that which is recorded in Matthew. So both of those are, both of those, Matthew's account, uh, Luke's account, have, have stumped more uh, people than, you, than we might know. But let's try to put them a little bit, and we're going to use a graphic in a moment here. Matthew's gene- genealogy starts with Abraham, and it goes forward from the past to Jesus' birth. Starts with Abraham, way down here. This is where Mary is, where Jesus is now. This goes way back to Abraham, but then it starts coming forward. Out of the past, coming into the present. Matthew traces Jesus' ancestry through his adoptive father, Joseph. And Matthew's purpose is to show that Jesus was a true Jew, a fulfillment of God's promises. Because he was truly Jewish and had the pedigree, he is capable of fulfilling all of God's promises to Israel, to the people of Israel. He is suited by his genealogy to do that. Now Luke's genealogy starts with Jesus and goes from the present to the past. Goes back to where Mary is here and then goes all the way, even beyond Abraham, all the way to Adam. You see, Luke's genealogy starts with Jesus and goes from present to past all the way back to Adam who was created by God. And Luke traces Jesus' ancestry through his biological mother, Mary. Now, here's our graphic there. (laughs) Finally got to it. Okay, the flow of history. You see Matthew's there. Whoops, Uh, that's right, you can't. For those of you that can or see this, I'll try to put this on the screen. Let's see, maybe. Maybe not. Uh, Should be showing up. Oh, there we go. Okay, there's Matthew. That's at the top, on on the left side of the top, and on the right side of the top there, Luke. You notice the flow of history for Matthew, past to present. For Luke, present to past. Original ancestor, Matthew, Abraham. His account starts. In this case, in Luke, it's Adam, all the way back to Adam. Traces whose lineage? Matthew traces Joseph. Luke traces Mary, primarily. And then what type of lineage was it? In Matthew's case, making sure the royal alignment is there, the right stuff to be son of David and sit on his throne it's royal lineage in Matthew and it's natural ancestry being one of us now that hopefully helps a little bit you see both Adam and Jesus have something in common and you know what it is 
they have no human biological father. The first Adam didn't because he was created what? From the ground, from the dust of the earth. The second Adam, our Lord Jesus, he didn't either because he was born through extraordinary supernatural means and he had no earthly biological father either and calling Adam the son of God Luke reflects the influence of his mentor who was none other than the apostle Paul the apostle Paul remember he traveled with Paul a lot of times Luke did and he had gotten this all this information no doubt from Mary who knew her genealogy Luke reflects the influence of Paul by pointing to Jesus as the second Adam he's the second Adam the first one was the son of God but he blew it and he fell and he brought himself and his wife and all their posterity by ordinary generation into the curse. But the second Adam came into this world being conceived of the Holy Spirit and was brought into this world by extraordinary generation. Not ordinary. And he became the life-giving spirit. Listen to, the, listen to this wonderful passage from 2 Corinthians chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 21 through 22. For as by a man, by a, a real human man, Christ had to be human. We're talking about the human side now. We've already talked about the divine. Now the human. For as by a man came death, that man is the first Adam. By a man, the second Adam, Jesus, also comes the resurrection from the dead. He's the one that's going to come and make it right. Fix everything. Restore it. For as in Adam, the first Adam, all die. Anybody that comes from him and connected to him, you're a dead man walking, dead woman walking. But so in Christ, the second Adam. Adam number two, all shall be made alive. All that are in Christ. All that with a curse will be broken. Life eternal will be known and restored because of the accomplishments of our Lord Jesus Christ. short epilogue so that's just two points but there's a short epilogue God's pleasure echoes in those precious words that I said earlier you are my son whom I love with you I am well pleased he was well pleased 
in retrospect, because Jesus had lived the sinful, uh, the, lived 30 years sinless as to the righteousness of God. He was well-pleasing because he did live a sinless, righteous life. He, God was pleased because at the prospect of Christ's atoning death, Christ would lay down his life for us, taking our place in the great exchange. We getting what he deserved and him getting what we deserve. And he was pleased that the failed, this is the part that, that should, should blow us away, he was pleased, the father was pleased that the failed, flawed children of the first Adam would one day be redeemed by the blood of the flawless, triumphant second Adam. That, my friends, is the gospel. That is the gospel that changes everything. I'm hammering heavy on Mr. Hughes today, but you... Hear this, this is, this is such, such joyous news. Apart from the Son's work at Calvary, no one will now ever hear, he's talking about to Christians, to those that are in Christ, apart from the Son's work on Calvary, once that's done, and remember Jesus said, it is finished, tetelestai, it's done, it's over, it's past. Never going back there again. No one will ever hear. None of God's children will ever hear God say, You are my son whom I love. Whom I love. With you I am well pleased. No one. God cannot say that. He said that idea, God cannot say that. God cannot say that to flawed humanity any longer. It was true until Christ came. But now if we are in Christ, there is now no condemnation. No longer will we be flawed, failed humanity. However, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Upon these New creations, God's sons and daughters, have his abiding pleasure forever. God's sons and daughters now have God's abiding pleasure, not just on his beloved son, but also now because of what Christ has done for his beloved sons and daughters of the faith that put their trust in him brothers and sisters 
An old divine said this many years ago. Christ, the Son of God, became a son of Adam that we, the sons of Adam, might become the sons of God. Isn't that amazing? Amen. Father, thank you. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, for coming to us as the Son of God. Father, thank you for sending him. Now that we, who were helpless, hopeless sons of Adam, now in Christ have become the sons of the living God upon whose favor rest now and always. Oh, Father, for such good news, such a precious gospel, we thank you. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let's stand for our hymn of response.